the Bible says that I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I think the first thing I'd like for us to do this morning, we're going to pray and then you'll be seated. I'll share some other things with us. Uh, the question I ask myself, what do you do when tragedy strikes? We just had one in Pittsburgh and we're asking God through his Holy Spirit uh, to bless our nation. So let's go before God in prayer first. Father, this is what we do at Cornerstone Baptist Church when tragedy strikes. Father, we do not back up. We do not tremble. We do not fear. But we know, Father, that you are in control of everything. And we are resting and depending upon you. For that Jewish congregation, Father, would you comfort those with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And Father, if there's anyone here today that needs the comforting and the wonderful, magnificent touch of a holy God, would you do that for them right now? In the name, Father, that truly is above every name, the name whereby every knee shall bow, every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray, and for Christ's sake. If your heart said amen, amen a second time. Amen just one more time. One for the Father, one for his Son, and one for his precious Holy Spirit. You may be seated. Just a brief uh, notation, if you will. Uh, we should, at this time, those who are traveling with us, we should be on day seven uh, addressing the matter of strengthening hands. If you've not dove in the water with us, we'll just say yes, 40 days of yes. And my wife, every time I call her, she tells me, I have something I want you to say yes about. I'm going shopping. What did you say? Yes. So I am practicing my yes, and believe me, it is working. I may need to get some money to pay some things off from somebody from all the yeses I've been doing for my wife. So we want to say yes at Cornerstone to whatever God wants us to do dive in the water, and so forth. If you don't have the resources for the book, uh, by the grace of God, we'll make that available for you. Uh, but if you do have them, use that for the glory of God. So we want to say yes uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm excited about what God is going to do after the 40 days, how God's going to do his work in our lives. And I pray that God will bless our church beyond measure and touch this community by the power and the grace of God. So once again, 40 days of what? Okay, let's do it one more. Let's just rock the whole place up, you know. 40 days of what? Yes! Now, I know there are some young folks who, when I played basketball and I was like a Michael Jordan and so forth, I know you can really say yes, good. Ready, say go. Just say yes! Thank you so much. God bless you. It must be Youth Hunters Weekend or something, all right? I, I see we're down in Children's Department and lots of dads gone this morning. That's all right. We're just going to pray that that big old buck never comes by them today, okay? Uh, we're going to pray that they learn that God blesses those people who hunt on Saturday morning instead of Sunday morning. Amen? Uh, we know who the redeemed of the people of the Lord are, and we're going to say so. Amen? Uh, all right, I'm getting you there somewhere. You know, maybe I should say it like this. Jesus, when he comes back, is going to come back during deer season. And he's going to find out who the sheep, that's how they're going to separate the sheeps from the goats. 
Um, I, I think I read that in Revelation somewhere. And if you disagree, it's just because you didn't read it in the original language. So uh, we had a great men's event Friday night, enjoyed uh, hanging out with men and boys, and uh, we had a great uh, fun time together. I want to remind you that coming up November 16th and 17th, uh, we are going to have a men's weekend uh, on Friday night and Saturday morning, and uh, we want you to come and be a part of that. One thing I, I did not mention before, but I, I, I know it's been out there on Facebook and things like that, but that's going to be uh, $10 per uh, person that gets you in and everything. And the only reason we're doing that is just to try to help cover some of the costs, uh, bringing in Dr. Noble as well as the Jason Lovins Band. And then we're going to be receiving a love offering for the Jason Lovins Band that Sunday night that they're with us uh, as well. So I uh, hope you'll come and be a part of that, men and boys. Make that a priority. Mark it on your calendar. I know you'll be blessed. Even if you can only come one of those occasions, we uh, you're going to be blessed. I hope you'll come and be a part of that, okay? Uh, lots of announcements in the bulletin. I'll let you take the time to read through them all. If you're a guest among us for the first time this morning, just want to say welcome. You're with family. We're glad you're here. You should have received a welcome bag on the way in the door. Inside that welcome bag is some information and a small gift from our church, but also there's a visitor's card. If you take just a couple of moments and fill that out and drop that in the offering bag so that we could have record you were here, we would appreciate it. We also have a uh, room over here in the back of the sanctuary that if you uh, uh, need that for any purpose or any reason, take a child back there, uh, you're welcome to use so. It's there for your comfort and convenience. You can still look in on the services and listen. We have nursery. If you go out the doors and to the left for zero to five years old. If you want to uh, uh, entrust us with your kids, you can take them back in there and we'll take care of them. And then on down the hallway into the Cafe Gematorium is where our children's church is at this morning. And you can, uh, and anybody K through fifth grade is welcome to go back there. And we'd uh, love to be able to minister to your family in that way. If I could have the men who are going to help with the offering this morning, go ahead and make their way forward. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke again, the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in the sixth chapter. And we're going to look at two stories that really were meant to be read together, uh, even though they are separated by divisions in your uh, account there uh, that you would hold in your hands. But we're going to look at both stories in verses 1 down to verse number 11. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse number six, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man there whose right hand was withered and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Verse eight, but he knew their thoughts and he said, uh, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, uh, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Verse number 11, and I think this is a key to the, the two stories together. And he says in verse 11, but they were filled with fury. Literally in the Greek, it means they were besides themselves in anger. They were filled with fury or besides themselves in anger. And they discussed with one another what they might do 
to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the day and for the opportunity that you've given to us to come together in your house, to study your word, to sing songs of praise and worship and adoration for this moment that you've given to us to come into this place and to indeed remember that you are Lord of the Sabbath, that Jesus, that you are the one who controls our destinies, that you are our Lord, our supreme commander. You are in charge of our lives this morning. And indeed, you are worthy of all of our praise. You have instructed in your word, you've given times and seasons for all things, including this one. And may today be a day of encouragement for the downtrodden and the weary and the worn out. May be a day of rest for those whose life just seems like it has gotten out of control. May it be a time of conviction for, for those of us who have trusted in your word so many times, trusted in Christ. May it be a time of conviction that might draw us ever so closer into the image of your son Jesus Father, would you take these offerings, these gifts that we offer to you this morning and make no mistake about it, we offer them to you and not to an institution or an entity, but we give them to you and may you use them for your kingdom purposes that your will might be accomplished here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. At verses 1 down to verse number 11, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 down to verse number 11. Uh, it's been said uh, that uh, the devil is always in the sound system. I think that's probably true, don't you think? That's probably what got him kicked out of heaven, wouldn't you imagine? Uh, because those sound guys, they never know what they're doing, and they always think they're in charge. Amen? And uh, uh, I'm just teasing. We, uh, I appreciate uh, our folks, our music folks, our sound folks, and all that they do all the time. Don't you? They, they work so hard to make our services run smoothly. Luke chapter 6 this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 down to verse number 11. We're going to speak on the subject matter of Jesus and the death of legalism, the death of legalism. Now that ought to get your, your wood on fire this morning, right? I mean, that type of sermon title is just expurs lots of excitement, right? And yet it's an important subject matter, the death of legalism. What in the world do we mean about that? I was thinking back uh, this week, uh, preparing our message uh, for this morning, I was thinking back about nine and a half years ago when I received a letter from uh, Dr. Payne from Cornerstone Baptist Church, and uh, I was so thankful, uh, and, uh, and I was thinking about this this week, how generous and kind he was in the spirit of that letter. He, he just wrote me a letter that said, hey, uh, we're looking for a pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church, and he went on to describe some of the things that were going on in the life of the church and all of that, and then he got to the end of it, and he said, said, we're just looking for man's God for the, or God's man for the job, right? We're looking for God to provide the right person to do the right things, to be led by the Lord, be filled with the Spirit of God to come and be our pastor here at Cornerstone. And I was just, just remarking this week, thinking back on that, just how uh, generous and caring and what graciousness of the spirit of that letter was. And I was thinking about that and, and what I've seen from other churches over the years and so on and so forth. But then it got me thinking about when when I arrived on scene, they had gone through the process of the interview, and I preached in, the, in, uh, in view of a call, uh, or I'm sorry, I preached at a couple of places, and the, and the pulpit committee had come and listened, and I was coming up for the weekend where it kind of all culminates. You come and you preach in front of the church, and then they vote on you one way or another, and some of you who were there then are saying, we've still been thinking about whether or not we made the right choice, but I came up and uh, that weekend, and they had a dinner for us that Saturday night for my family and I, and we arrived arrived and we got to meet some of the team leaders. They said, it'll be just a small uh, dinner. It'll just be some of our team members and leaders and things like that. And we walked in and there was like 300 people there, 
right? And uh, it was just amazing how many folks were there, and we gathered around and talked and had a good evening, and the, sur- the, the evening was coming to its end, and I was wearing something typical to what I have on now, just a pair of slacks, a shirt, and, and a jacket, and, and one of the folks pulled me aside and said, hey, now listen, we are really excited about you being here tomorrow. And I said, I'm excited as well, and we're excited about what we've heard about you, and we're excited what we've heard from you tonight, and looking forward to hearing you preach tomorrow, and, and looking forward to your answers to the question and answer time, and just excited about that. And I said, I am too. And, and, and then she said to me, but one thing is, um, you're not going to wear that tomorrow, are you? And I, and, and I, I kind of looked down at myself, and I thought, well, I thought I was pretty clean. Uh, uh, did I spill something on me? What? You know, uh, I looked around for a second, and, and I looked back up at her, and I said, huh? I, I thought maybe I'd heard her wrong. And she said, you're, you're not going to wear that tomorrow, are you? And I, and I looked again around, and I, I thought maybe there was some, you know, threads coming undone or some cracks. And then I looked at the crack in front of me, and I said, I have no idea what you're talking about, ma'am. And she reached up and grabbed my jacket, and she said, you're not going to wear that tomorrow, are you? And I said, well, I, I, I don't really know. And she said, well, you know, uh, I was, you know, we're, we're, we're not that kind of church. And, and it'd be better if you just came in blue jeans and tennis shoes. It, it would probably go a lot better for you and for us. And I, I said, well, ma'am, I, I don't know if I brought any of those things, but I'll make you a deal. I'll come and preach in whatever I want to wear when I get up in the morning. How's that, Right. And so I went to bed that night and it kind of stuck with me and I got up the next morning and I put on my clothes and I, I came to church and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, and lo and behold, it didn't affect the vote at all. I don't think, right? Although maybe those two folks that voted no, maybe I've got a, a window into that now, right? And I, but, I, but I remember that conversation so vividly. And I, so I pulled her aside that Sunday morning and I said, Were, was my jacket really that offensive? And, and, she, and we had this long conversation about what is acceptable at church and what's not. A couple of years later, I was having breakfast with one of my friends, and uh, their their pastor was or their church was looking for a pastor, and he uh, served on the pulpit committee, and he brought me this this thing that their church had put together, and he put it down in front of me, and he said, "I want you to look at this and tell me what you think about it. This is going to be our guidelines for hiring our next pastor, right?" And I said, "Okay," and so I'm skimming through it, and. It said that he needed to be about 40 years old with 30 years of experience. Uh, he needed to have a seminary degree uh, from such and such uh, recognized institutions and gave me this whole list of all these things. And I think it was like maybe three pages long. And we got kind of to the end of it. And, and I said, well, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm not really impressed. I, I don't know that this is the best way to do this. And he said, well, why, why is that? And I said, well, you know, I, I, I don't know that Jesus would make your criteria, right? I'm, I'm not sure that, that you're going you're gonna to have a hard time finding somebody that meets all these criteria, and, and I'm afraid that you're going to miss David because you're looking for Saul. I tell you those two stories this morning because what I want to share with you today is that there's legalism that creeps into our minds, and oftentimes we don't even realize it. And I want you to know today that Jesus breaks down legalism. He breaks down the letters of the law which kill us, which kill our churches this morning, that kill our small groups, that kill our spiritual endeavors. He breaks down those barriers, and there's no better example of it 
than here in Luke chapter 6 in these two stories. When I started in the Gospel of Luke a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you that Luke's purpose in writing this occasion was that Luke wanted us to see that God had become man in Jesus Christ and that Jesus was here to relate to us, to show us who God was and that he was going to show us that God loved man so much that he opened up the kingdom to the oppressed, to the poor, to the downtrodden, to the hurting, to the vulnerable, to the unlovable. And God was for the first time in human history knowable. He was relatable to mankind. God knew our temptations and our struggles in temptation because of the temptation of Christ at the beginning of Luke's gospel. God's willingness and ability to remove man's greatest barrier to relationship with him, sin, was where we were at last week in the forgiveness of sin in the work of Jesus Christ. Now this morning, Jesus, we, or Luke wants to show us that as we see Jesus, remo- uh, see Jesus magnified and glorified, he will also remove us from the letter of the law that kills us, legalism, as the pathway to proper religion. I believe in Luke 6, we contain some of the most important lessons of life, the lessons that are not easily learned and oftentimes creep up on us when we were unexpecting them in the first 11 verses. As Jesus challenges the teachers of his day on their legal requirements of the people, I wonder if there's not some lessons for us along the way as well. But before we dive in too deeply this morning, I want to make sure that you and I speak the same language when I use that term legalism this morning. First of all, for, the, our, our, for our discussion, our title this morning is that Jesus is the death of legalism. If we're not on the same page about what we mean by legalism, then we might create some major problems in our churches. Legalism, by its very definition, is a system of rules and restrictions placed on a person or a people to restrict their living or to define their living under a specific protocol. Let me say it again. Legalism is, by its very definition, a system of rules or restrictions placed on a person or people to restrict their living or to define their living under a specific protocol. What legalism is not is the common argument that is used in our time about specific religious expressions. In other words, let me give you some examples. You will hear people say that because a church uses a particular style of music or because they have liturgy in their services or because they have a particular order to their worship, that they are a legalistic church. Well, beloved, that is not necessarily true. Now, we may glean some impressions. We might get glimpses into their views of life uh, through their worship services, but that is not a definitive answer as to whether or not the people themselves are legalistic because when you talk about music style or components of a setting like we have here this morning, listen, you're talking all about personal preference. There are some folks who like liturgy. They like diving into deep theology. There are some folks who like to sing certain songs because the music rings true with them. There are some folks that like to do things a certain way because they express the devotion that is within them. By contrast, some churches are much more refrained, restrained in their expressions of worship. You will see no hands go up. And if someone begins to clap, they will identify them as a first-time visitor, right? And in other churches, you will see people up with their arms and and dancing around. And that won't happen here with me because I can't dance. It's really that simple, right? But you will notice that in Luke chapter 6, 
When Jesus challenged the problem of legalism, he does so from both a field and a synagogue, and both had a reference to daily life. In other words, legalism by its definition is not one orderly setting, but rather a rule or restrictions that impact all of life itself. In other words, in this moment, the challenge of the hunger of the disciples and the impaired living of the crippled impacted more than just a single hour of their week. So what is often referred to as legalism may not in fact be legalism at all, but rather a preferred expressed way of worshiping. So when we talk about legalism, we are talking about a system of legal requirements which are oppressing a person or people because of their demand for living. In other words, day-to-day observance of their faith. Let me try to give you some examples that are sure to offend everyone across the aisle this morning. Singing hymns or using liturgy in worship service is not legalistic. By contrast, throwing out your CD collection, or I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong generation, your iPod playlist, throwing out your iPod playlist of any music with a syncopated rhythm is legalistic, right? Another example might be preferring to read from the King James Bible or the English Standard or the New American Standard, whatever your preferred translation this morning, just because you choose to use that regularly is not legalistic. But by contrast, there was once an independent Baptist minister by the name of Jack Hiles in Indiana who said that a person can't be saved unless he had read, been read to from the King James Version. That's legalism, right? Teaching your children to dress with moderation or dressing reverently for reverent occasions, that's not legalism. Greeting Cam at the door in his Hawaiian attire and not letting him into the church building because it goes against what we believe, that is legalism, right? And all of God's people said, I knew that shirt would make it into a sermon at some point. The point I'm trying to show this morning is that often we ascribe something to legalism simply because it is different than our comfort or different from our preference, but that may not always be the case. In the story that I began with, my preference for wearing a jacket and slacks is because of the way in which I was raised. It's quite simply, I like to get up and put on dress clothes. I like the way they feel. I know some of you don't, and that's okay. Listen, you wear what you want to wear to church, and I'll wear what I want to wear, and we will all get along just fine, right? Legalism, by its very definition, affects the entire existence of a person, the whole living. And it places a burden upon a person or a people that ultimately leads to, are you ready, a new terminology, moralism. That is a salvation that is brought about or believed to be brought about by right action and not by the work of the Spirit of God. Secondly, this morning, we do not want to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Whenever we, uh, whenever we talk about the death of legalism, all of the Gen X and millennials and hippies start shouting and cheering because they are so excited. To be clear, the death of legalism did not mean the end of the law of Jesus. Quite the opposite. You see, beloved, this morning we believe firmly through Scripture itself that God has placed some law on man on our living, on our, on our existence, for the purpose of reigning in or restraining our sinful condition. Jesus himself said that he did not come to abolish the law, but rather he wrote to fulfill it. Where the message of Christ and legalism reached their ultimate breaking point is in duty and delight. You see, legalism requires observance of the law out of duty. I am required to do so. 
But beloved, Christ requires observance to God's law this morning through delight and sacrifice. I satisfy God's law in my life out of a delight for Christ's work on my behalf. As the great apostle said, the love of Christ compels us. And there's the difference. The death of legalism did not mean what New Age Christianity would argue for today. The abolishing of all of God's law as written in Scripture. We live in a time where we are told to live and let live. Namely, let other people live their lives however they want. No bother. Don't, don't speak against that. Don't preach against it. To impose God's standard on another is to be unloving. We are told it is legalistic. It's legalistic, we are told, to preach about the institution of marriage, to preach about abortion, to preach about the transgender movement, and so much more. Beloved, the proclamation of God's standard is not legalistic, or I am in big trouble this morning. The proclamation of God's standard has never been legalistic. Jesus was not abolishing God's standard in Luke 6. Legalism would be to not welcome and treat with respect and dignity the transgender in our midst, the homosexual in our community, the broken ones who have experienced abortion. Listen, legalism binds them from our presence because they do not measure up to the law that we have affirmed in God's truth. But the freedom of Christ, the freedom that Christ offers, is one in which we can welcome such, the least of these, while affirming God's truth in love for the purpose of them being set free from their desires, shame, and guilt like each and every one of us. What has often been called legalism by some has really just been a desire to uphold God's standard by others. And so we must have the difference between the two very clearly today, which is not always easy. We could go on and on for another hour or so with this discussion, but I think that Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, help clear the air for our discussion. There are two stories which are really made to be read together. Luke wrote them together in an effort to give clarity to this subject. They both speak to the same eternal truths. In verses 1 through 5, our first story is found. We are told that on a particular Sabbath, the day that was set aside by Jewish law in the Old Testament as a day of rest in the model of God's creation, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field. Actually, Luke says they were walking through grain fields. They were on a long journey. When his disciples did the unthinkable, in verse number one, they plucked, the ESV says, and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. It really seems like nothing to us. I mean, we think to ourselves, if these are the worst of our problems, or if these are the worst of their problems, they have no idea what they're missing out on, right? But the legal scholars of the day recognize the infraction, as Luke tells us, because no work is permitted on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, the leaders of the law looked at this and said, something is wrong. I like what the, the great New Testament commentator Leon Morris writes. He provides some clarity on this. He wrote these words. He said, The Pharisees would find in this plucking of the ears a breach of the regulation which forbade reaping, and in the rubbing of their hands that which prohi prohibited threshing. Throwing away the husk probably represented winnowing, while eating showed that they had prepared food for distinct breaches of the Sabbath in one mouthful. That's, he writes, why we go to McDonald's on Sunday, right? In other words, they had broken all of the law in a singular moment. They had broken four laws by the simple act of feeding themselves as they walked through a grain field. 
Jesus had come and declared himself already as the Messiah to the Jews. And he's going to use one of his uh, uh, phrases, catchphrases, as he calls himself the Son of Man at the end of this particular story. He's declared himself as the Messiah to the Jews that they had long awaited. How could his followers in this moment, the Pharisees must have thought to themselves, show such disdain for the law? If this is the Messiah for the Jews, how do they operate as though they are not Jewish? How do they operate as though these things are unimportant? Or maybe they thought to themselves, if he were not, if he, uh, if they're not purposefully breaking the law in this moment because they're a bunch of country bumpkins, maybe his first item of business should have been as the Messiah to the Jews to teach at least his followers what the law had said. How had he failed to do this? The Pharisees, they were incensed, and so they asked in verse number 2, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus' response, I think, is powerful. It reminds them of an Old Testament story of one of their beloved and favorite characters, King David. David, being war-torn and weary, led his men into the temple, and they ate of what is called the bread of the presence, right? something that was reserved in temple worship only for priests to be provided for. But David was no priest, and in fact, one might argue that his entering into this present made a great breach of the law as no military leader, no kingly figure, nobody like that was allowed to enter and intrude into God's area of expertise. But notably, no one in this Old Testament story thought anything about it. In fact, the implication is here that Jesus' scholars that he's debating with thought nothing about it either. He says that David let his men in here to do this, and nobody seems to be angry about that. Why are you angry about my disciples simply eating a few heads of grain? The implication was obvious. Their need in that moment in David's time superseded the legal requirements of the temple. What they needed was sustenance to see, stay living, to stay in the fight, to not to get some encouragement, to get some, something built up into them, to wake up themselves as it were, right? He was saying that their need superseded the legal requirements. And likewise, the apostles needing to feed themselves superseded the legal requirements. Kind of be like a pastor coming in with donuts on a Sunday morning, right? And come and bringing those donuts in for a Sunday school class when a homeless man greets him at the door and says, Sir, can I bother you to have a little bit of food? And the pastor says, No, sorry, these are reserved for those in my adult Sunday school class. You can come in uh, to class if you like, and then you can have one. That is legalism, right? And Jesus is saying in this moment, Why is it that you were okay with David, but you somehow struggle with the concept that my followers in need of food are able to do the same. No one objected to David's breach of the law, for there was a great need. Now, if David started doing this every day, someone might wonder if he was a Democrat. I mean, uh, if someone might want start asking some questions, right? Some of you are going to get that later. But because there was an obvious life need, the legal requirement was set aside. Thus, Jesus' point was not that the Sabbath should not be honored, but rather that the Pharisees' strict observance and the requirements they had placed on the need to observe the Sabbath had now missed the point of the Sabbath altogether. Beloved God had created the Sabbath, right, as a day of rest, a day when man could lay aside his burdens, focus his attention on the provision that God had provided, and simply rest with his family. The leaders had turned it into a day of work by trying not to work. 
But his most powerful declaration was yet to come. In verse number 5, he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It was a definitive claim of Jesus' divinity in this moment. The Sabbath was not a human institution. It was a divine establishment. It was something that God had created and therefore God alone governed it. God alone had authority over it. That Jesus would claim leadership over a divine establishment was a direct claim to his divinity. For only God could make such a claim in this moment. But it also meant that he was rewriting history in their very presence. If Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, if Jesus is God, then he is establishing the standard. He was laying claim that he alone had the right to declare what was permissible and that which was not. That which was illegal. That's a point that I wish that I could spend the next several hours on this morning, but you wouldn't stay for that long. But it does beg a very relevant question that we're still facing today. How much of the Old Testament law is still relevant? Andy Stanley, uh, the son of the famed Charles Stanley, got in all kinds of hot water here recently if you've been paying attention to such things uh, because of his conversation about how irrelevant the Old Testament had become. Scholars over the years have been divided over the, uh, over the relevance. In fact, uh, let me give you two, for example, Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, believed that everything in the Old Testament should be thrown out except that which Jesus specifically endorsed. John Calvin, by contrast, believed that everything in the Old Testament needed to continue to be applied except that which Jesus specifically ruled out. Now, that is polarizing opinions, right? Church has argued about this for years, and I will not digress on that. That's an entirely different sermon to which all of God's people said, dilly, dilly. But I would point out to you to be diligent to read the Gospels of the New Testament and the letters and see how many things are specifically endorsed from the Old Testament law brought into the New Testament, such things as the institution of marriage, tithing, days of rest, and so much more. We could go on a list. What it meant, most importantly for our discussion in this moment, was that Jesus' followers were following the very one who had written the law himself. That's what his affirmation means. When he says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, and by by extension, I being the Son of Man, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, I am God, he was saying in that moment, what I say goes. What I say is permissible is permissible, and that which I say goes is not, is not. Second story comes in verses 6 down to verse number 11, where we find Jesus teaching in a synagogue on another Sabbath. We don't know if it was immediately the following week or just another Sabbath, but Luke puts it here, and he does so because he wants to draw out the same conclusion. On this occasion, Pharisees, according to verse 7, specifically were watching to see what Jesus would do about a man with a withered hand because they wanted to disprove him. They wanted to bring an accusation about him. By the way, as just a side note, you can always tell who's most legalist because they're always more concerned with what other people are doing, right? They're always watching from the outside. They're not concerned about their own selves. Legalistic people are by nature always looking to see what somebody else is doing. That's what the Pharisees were doing in this moment. They are watching and waiting to see, to play a game, to see if they can disqualify Christ because he chooses to heal a man on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus wasn't going to play their game. 
knowing what was going on, he asked the man to approach. And before doing anything, he asked a simple question in verse number 9 of the people. He turned, I suppose, to the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders. And he said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Let me break it down. He's asking four specific questions. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? This day that was made for rest. Is it lawful to do evil on the Sabbath? Third question, is it lawful to save life? Is it lawful, fourth, to destroy life? The manner in which he asked that question is paramount. By framing it the way he did, doing good or doing harm, saving life or destroying life, what he was saying in this moment was in contrast to what they were looking at. To heal the man would be to do good, to save life, right? Which the Jews would agree with. But to not heal the man, he is drawing the same implication that to not heal the man would then by contrast be doing evil. The man's life had been impaired by his condition. So Jesus is saying, if I simply walk past the man, if I do nothing for him, I would be, are you ready, actively participating in doing evil on the Sabbath. Surely you would not want me to do that. We go back to our illustration of the pastor bringing in donuts and the homeless man wanting to know if he can have some. And the pastor walks by and says, absolutely not. These are reserved for the Baptist, right? By the way, that's how you get better church membership, right? Potlucks. You just invite people to free food and they join all the time, right? It's the second statement that is so critical. It's perhaps where the brother of our Lord is so poignant in his writing of his epistle that one who has the ability to help his brother but does not do it, he has established a false religion, whereas true religion, real religion, cares for the oppressed, the orphaned, and the widowed. Jesus is saying in this moment, is it lawful for me to do what is good? Or is it lawful, would you prefer that I do what is evil by not helping this fellow? In other words, inaction, when you have the ability to act for the betterment of another, is against God's law. That's what he's saying. The very thing that they were wanting to accuse Jesus of. They were wanting to accuse him of breaking God's law, but he was saying, if you don't let me heal him, if I don't heal him, I will by extension be breaking God's law. In verse number 10, Jesus instructs the man to stretch out his hand, at which time everyone sees a miracle has transpired in their presence. But verse 11, I said this was the key to the entire text. Listen to it again. Verse 11, after having seen the man miraculously healed, it says, but they were filled with fury. A better translation is they were beside themselves with anger. Why were they besides themselves with anger? Because Jesus had healed a man whose life had been impaired by a condition? Or because Jesus had shown the preposterous nature of their legalism? Which was it? I don't know. But they were angry. They were consumed with it. Now, beloved, we can miss the trees for the forest here. What can we learn from these two stories? Why do we need to read them together? What can we apply to 21st century Christianity? Well, I think there's a couple of truths this morning. Just three, and I'll be done. First of all, what Jesus is showing us in this moment is there is an undeniable and unalterable claim that Jesus Christ is God. The most important foundational truth to the entire story is that God, Jesus Christ, rules and reigns over creation. He was the maker of heaven and earth, and in this moment and still today, he rules and reigns over his creation, right? 
In this moment when Jesus described himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, he was saying, I am in charge. The second truth that we can learn from it is that these stories give us clear definitions of what legalism is. Legalism, I said, is a standard by which it's a set of rules that are applied to a people or a person that constrain their living, their existence. Legalism, beloved, is a standard that does not value a person. In the first story, legalism did not value the hunger of the disciples. In the second story, legalism did not consider the condition of the man. You notice that they're not talking about any of that. They are more interested in the politics of winning, as it were. They are more interested in proving their own point. They are more interested in showing who Jesus is not, that they have missed completely the people who are most affected. That's what legalism does. It loses sight of the value of a person. Second, legalism is a standard that gives some an excuse to do what is not right. To not do what is right, rather. In the first, a standard was set, just go hungry. Just go hungry. That's what legalism would say. In the second, a standard was set to have the power to help, but to choose not to. And I'm sure it was couched in all kinds of good reasons. Most telling, legalism so often leads to anger. Disciples, they were at peace in the first story because they had food in their bellies. The man was overjoyed in the second story because he had was set free from a debilitating condition. But the Pharisees, they, well, they were beside themselves in anger. That's what legalism does. You could add a fourth this morning. Legalism is a man-made, is man-made whereas right religion is decreed by God through his precious word. Here in The first story, when Jesus declares himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying that he is God and therefore he reigns and rules. He has ultimate authority. In other words, real religion always follows what God has declared, whereas legalism makes up its own way as you go along. You say, why is that important? Why must I know this morning? Why do these two stories teaching me about a definition of legalism? Why is that important in my life? Because, beloved, as I shared with my Sunday school class this morning, listen, we are all in danger of creeping into legalism, either on one end of the spectrum or the other. You see, on the one end of the spectrum is a legalism that requires people to wear a suit and tie, and there is, a, on the other end of the spectrum, a, a legalism that says you cannot wear such, Right? Where, oh, where are the people who used to find themselves in the middle on such things? When you're evaluating legalism in your own life, you should ask questions like this. You should say, is my standard what God has set, or is it a legalistic protocol I've made up for my own self? Is what I'm doing with my worship, is it something God has decreed, or is it something that I have made? That's what it means to evaluate legalism in our own lives and why it's important. In other words, when I'm considering these things, I have to ask myself some questions. Is what I'm requiring taking into consideration the the value of another? We go through this a lot on Monday nights. I've shared with people before, and and I hope you receive this in the spirit of love in which it's given. I can tell how good of a Monday night we had, how much ministry we accomplished on Monday night by how many cigarette butts I pick up on Tuesday morning. If I pick up a lot, that means we had a lot of folks that we were ministering to on Monday night. Legalism loses sight of the individual. 
It gets wrapped up in something, whatever it is. And sometimes, most of the time, oftentimes, wrapped up in a good thing. It gets wrapped up in a good thing, but loses sight of the individual. Secondly, we should ask ourselves questions like, is what I'm requiring meant to be an excuse not to do something? Is it just easier not to dive in and do that, or is it better that I would? Third, is what I'm requiring leading to life and liberty, or is it, require, is it leading to more anger? Is what I'm requiring what God teaches or what man requires? How you answer those questions helps define what is legalism in your life. These two stories stand to show us. I want you to notice that Jesus nowhere questioned the legal argument of what the Pharisees were saying. He doesn't say to them that you have misunderstood, misrepresented. He doesn't say any of that things. What he does is he challenges the end result of that interpretation. He's challenging the fact that they have lost sight of the individual They've lost sight of the common sense good. They've lost sight of the purpose behind the law in an effort to apply the law strictly. Every parent in the room this morning ought to understand what I'm saying because we go through this even with our own children. We have a law in our house, right? We are only going to do things a certain way. But sometimes, and this is why the Apostle Paul tells fathers not to frustrate their children because this is where we are the best at it, right? Sometimes I lose sight of the value of the person in an attempt to apply the law as strictly as I can. You know what I'm saying? Legalism in this moment, these two stories help us with a definition. Third of all, if you have a definition of what legalism is, then the question becomes, and it's the most direct application of the two stories, am I willing to shed off those things which do not measure up to the freedom that Christ offers? You see, the first part is simple enough. We can recognize legalism. But then the question becomes, am I willing to shed off those things which can be properly identified as such? I'll leave you with a final thought here this morning, beloved. The point of both stories really show what Christ thought about people. Christ was not unbiblical, nor was he willing to throw away God's law. In fact, quite the opposite. Repeatedly, the New Testament witnesses that Christ adhered to the law perfectly and that he was the only one who ever lived without sin. But he was willing to do what it took to meet the needs of those who needed help, those who were hurting in his midst. I think it's the story of the Good Samaritan makes so powerful. You see, when the first people walked by, there could have been a legal argument for why they were doing such. Maybe the priest was going, it was his turn to serve as, as the high priest, and he, by touching a dead man's body, would become unclean and lose that opportunity. There were legal reasons why they could do so. But Jesus, in the telling of that story and in this teaching about the Sabbath, was showing that there is far more importance in life, not missing the people that are hurting, the people that are in need, the people that desperately need a touch from the Lord, not missing them because of legalism that we form in our own lives. Beloved, there is a world today of lost and hurting people this morning and I pray that Cornerstone Baptist Church, we would never become a people who are unwilling to do whatever it takes to go get them, to go touch them, even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. 
Even if it breaks man's preconceived notions of what it means to be religious, let's go get them. Again, I want to go back to where I started this message because I always fear in this discussion that someone will say, well, you heard the pastor say, throw out the law, do whatever we want, live and let live, right? That's not the point at all. Jesus was perfectly biblical in all that he did. He was perfectly right according to the law. But in this moment, he shows us how legalism kills. It kills. It would have left a man with a withered hand to continue life with a withered hand. And so it begs the question of us, where, what areas of our life have I formulated man-made religion, legalism, and it has prevented me from reaching another who desperately needed my help. I told you it's an exciting message. I can tell by the look on your faces. But I can tell you that I'm thankful that I preach it at Cornerstone Baptist Church and not some other churches that I've been a part of over the years. Because I've been a part of churches where as we start talking about legalism, they would have amen, they would have loved it. It's easier, it's simpler, right? But when we talk about the freedom that Christ offers, sometimes it gets a little messy. And so I invite you this morning to join me next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. picking up cigarette butts in the parking lot. Because we can see the value of the person. To be clear, doesn't mean that we condone a behavior. It doesn't mean that we allow them to continue in sin because, beloved, we love our brothers and sisters. We want to pull them out of it. But legalism kills and Christ offers life. Stand with me reverently and let's pray.